Welcome to the FML Podcast, the podcast on a mission to uncover actionable insights, explore the latest trends, and to catalyze your fintech's growth. Join Growth Gorilla's founder and managing director, Shamir Sachdev, and some of fintech's hardest-hitting marketers and leaders. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the FML Podcast. Today we're joined by John Hills, Head of B2B Marketing at Crowdcube. John, thanks for joining us today. Great to, great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Shamir. Amazing. Um, as, I, as I kind of always start um, at the very beginning, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey so far and a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I have what you might call a bit of a varied background, done a bit of everything, uh, which I think makes it more interesting. Uh, started out studying literature at uni, loved reading, uh, loved big ideas, stuff like that. Uh, was a teacher in Latin America for a couple of years, then got a sales oh, wow. job back in the UK. Realized, although that taught me a lot, wasn't necessarily my calling, so moved over to marketing. Um, I started out with early stage startups. One of those got acquired, which was lovely. One of those died, which, although tough at the time, taught me a lot about the world and how things work. Then, for personal reasons, moved to Toronto and started working for FrontFunder, which is Canada's largest equity crowdfunding platform. And again, for personal reasons, uh, around about 10 months ago, it was time to move back to the UK and was lucky enough to get a job at Crowdcube. Fast forward, here we are right now chatting. So that's a little potted history. I guess on the side, also helped run a seed accelerator, always been interested in VCs, ideas, entrepreneurship, ran my own agency for a little bit. And cold emailed my way into a job at Business Insider, doing a bit of freelance reporting. That was fun. Ended up doing an ad hoc interview with, with Gary V at a rooftop hotel, which was a little bit surreal but cool. And uh, yeah, that's that's me in a, in a nutshell, I guess. I'm going to ask about that Gary yes. V. How did how did that come about? So I <laughs> We've got yeah to yeah yeah. It's uh, it's a bit of a random one to be honest. Back in the days of white hat, black hat, zebra SEO, I was very focused on content worked for a company that did invoicing software, uh, nominally quite boring, but the marketing side was really fun. And one of the ways that we would do user acquisition is no one searches for invoicing software, but they do search for invoicing templates because they don't know that software exists. So a good thing you can do is create killer templates in Word, Google Docs, PDF, you name it, get those to rank really well on Google. And then you kind of nudge the users through using a template to creating an account. So we're very focused on link building, kind of tit for tat, quid pro quo, uh, content exchange. I'm quite good at outreach from the from the sales background. Taught me how to do that quite well. So I used to pitch a lot of press, one of which was Business Insider. Managed to get hold of the right editor. I think right place, right time. Pitching the idea. The article did really well. I thought this is quite fun. Shoot my shot. By the way, are you looking for freelance contributors? They said yes. Uh, kind of did that on a paid by paid basis. And from there, the articles went well, got more readers, and then kind of um, people would reach out to me with Reject into X, Y, or Z. Got to know quite a few PR agencies. One of them had Gary Vee in town and invited me along. Uh, fantastic day. Was a little bit of a, an odd, odd moment or surreal, but yeah, it was super fun. Was I'm, I'm, I, ha- I had my moments with Gary Vee. There's some bits of his content that I absolutely love, but I find it, it gets a little bit intense sometimes. Yeah, I, I have to say that... I feel it's a bit like a cult. I mean, I, I know who he is. Big respect for what he's done. It's not necessarily my my style. But if you 
if you speak out against Gary, his uh, his tribe will come after you. You know, in, in the comments on like Instagram yeah, yeah. or LinkedIn, which which is great that there's that loyalty. But yet, yeah, it's, it's perhaps not my style, to be honest. Yeah, he's um, yeah, his following's a bit like um, probably the Beyonce's following or, or, or the current uh, who's the man at the moment at the moment, Andrew Tate. Yes, um, you know, you speak out against any of that. Oh yeah, I mean, we could have a whole podcast just talking about him, but we won't. Um, yeah, you <laughs> talk out against him. Yeah, <laughs> Yes, he does. But I mean, some of his, you know, some of his, his approach has always been, you know, really, really solid. Um, it, it's been that, you know, I mean, we're kind of talking about this sort of before we started recording, which was that, you know, that building a brand. And then obviously he runs his, you know, Vayner Media, but he, he puts himself first. And so you become familiar with him and then eventually you, 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 you trickle down to his agency. You mentioned that you ran your own agency or you started up an agency, uh, kind of prior to Crowdcube. Um, well, what area was that specializing in? It was mainly working with companies who had quite a tech or a, a deep tech focus, created a brilliant product, got some initial traction, raised, let's say, anything up to a Series A funding, and then thought, you know, we need to scale quite quickly and quite fast. We don't have in-house marketing. We don't necessarily want to hire a marketer or build out that function, but we could do with kind of a fractal marketer or like a fractal kind of CMO type play. So bring someone yeah. in a retainer. Can you give us the direction? You know, a lot of, I think, any business, but particularly marketing is, do you know a good video agency? So rather than going out and, you know, Googling that is quite overwhelming. If someone has a connection to, I've worked with these people before, good price to do a great video, uh, you know, ditto content, ditto PPC or, or whatever else it is. Um, and so kind of using that. And then obviously you start small. I mean, you, you know this from the agency world, of course, but you start with one, that goes well. Uh, you get a referral to another one. But then again, doing it on the side is quite a commitment. You know, I did it for a while, but did, you basically don't have a weekend. And it is nice to do your hobbies too. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, as you, as you kind of mentioned, like running an agency is is intense on the best of days. Obviously, you, you were at Front Funder. What kind of attracted you to kind of like the crowdfunding space, the fintech space? You know, what, what was kind of motivations behind that? Well, I mean, I've always sort of loosely been in fintech, even, you know, the uh, the invoicing platform is about getting paid and kind of how help people process their payments. You bake in accounting into that as well. Uh, coupled with that, you know, as I said, with working with, uh, with the Seed Accelerator and kind of the idea of entrepreneurship as, uh, as a force for good, I've always admired people to have that conviction that go kind of all in on an idea and how much it takes to work something and, and run something. With Front Funder, you know, I, I kind of moved to Canada. I was in a new country. I was working remotely at the time, which now is kind of par for the course, but this was pre-COVID. So it was quite quite unusual, if you, if you want to put it that way. And the time difference working with a company back in Europe well, was a little bit tough for me. Became aware of the company and just, again, sort of right place, right time. Knew what they did. They reached out looking for someone to run the marketing department. Sounded like a great opportunity. Uh, complimented what I'd already done. And, and the rest, as I say, is history. Was there for two and a half years learned a lot, really, really enjoyed it. And then again, just great coincidence and timing for me that Crowdcube happened to need someone to head up their uh, their marketing at the time that I was moving back. Doubly nice because crowdfunding in Canada is around about five years behind where it is in the UK. So we always looked to Crowdcube as one of, you know, kind of the big boys, like how do they do it? What can we learn? And then I had to pinch myself a few times where I thought, oh my God, the stars are aligning here. You know, this is this is kind of what I know in a company that I've always looked up to, I can learn a lot. This feels like I could contribute. Let's go and kind of, yeah, that's 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 how it all played out. I've been following Crowdcube. I think we kind of worked it out. It was just over 10 years. 
And I kind of seen them going from, from, from when Darren was doing talks, as I said, you know, he was on stage with um, Jeff from Cedars and, and, and Cyber from Back to the Future. And it's not an easy concept to really get out there because it's a disruptive proposition. But then just to make it extra hard, it's also, you know, a marketplace. There's two sides to it. I want to dig into that a little bit because we've had a lot of brands come on board, but we actually haven't had a marketplace on board before. So I kind of want to talk about that supply and demand. The first question that I get asked is, you know, well, what do we do? Do we build supply first or do, do we build demand? I'd love to just get a bit of an overview of, you know, the experts, Crowdcube, how have they done it and how, you know, you guys have been doing it successfully for north of 10 years. So, yeah, a bit of a broad question, but yeah, let's get into it. Music to my ears, more than happy to nerd out about marketplace dynamics. Absolutely. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I think you've hit the nail on the head there. You have this perennial chicken and egg question, you know, kind of your supply, want the demand before they're going to work with you and, and vice versa. You know, uh, the demand are going to look to the supply before before they kind of create an account and start to work with you. I feel that best practice and experience dictates that you build up the supply and then you nurture the demand. So the way I think of that, an analogy, which I think we could all relate to is, for example, you know, Uber, you need to get those drivers on the platform before people are going to hail the drives, uh, the rides and then nurture it that way. Or an Airbnb is like you have to have the places that people can stay before they start booking them. And so when it comes to something like Crowdcube or any online marketplace, for us, the supply is getting companies on board, You know, explaining to them why you should crowdfund, what the value of it is, myth busting, which you know now we're 10 years in in the UK. I think people are quite au fait with what it is and how it works. There's still some skepticism. There's still some naysayers. There always are, but we've kind of crossed the chasm. In Canada, for example, a bit earlier stage, and and the team at FrontFund are doing an amazing job of you know educating the market and explaining to people. The classic one will come from a VC is your cap table is going to look super messy. Actually, it doesn't. You've got a VTA, a voter trust agreement. You tie it all together. Everyone is just one line on the cap table. Ditto in the UK, it's a nominee structure. But to go back to your original point about marketplaces, so what we do, we work to educate and get really uh, the companies excited about what we do. They are actually our hook the customer acquisition. So in a sense, the way that we get investors, our customer acquisition cost is zero because we're doing it through the companies. And that makes sense when you think about it, that if you go onto our platform right now, it's quite unlikely that you would just create an account. You wouldn't go to the trouble of creating an account unless you had the trigger to do it. So that's where the companies come in for us, where it's company X looks absolutely amazing. I want to be a part of that. You know, the, the barrier to entry is really low, even if I just have 10 pounds or I want to put a lot more in, a couple of clicks. I've become a co-owner. That's amazing. Where our demand side comes in, what we do is really nurture that. So the companies, we get them on the platform, we run a campaign that provides a new pool of users to us. Then where, where we have to come in on the marketing side is, okay, what can we do to get them to do a second investment? What's going to encourage them? What's going to get them interested? You know, you have the two types of investors predominantly, people that invest with the heart, people that invest with the mind, a combination of the two. We are quite scientific about that. So we split our investor base. I mean, we have over a million users, which is amazing, but we have a lot of data points to work with. So we split them down into different typologies. And the main one is what we call enthusiastic achievers. So those are people that, you know, have a fair amount of disposable income. They believe in tech as a force for good. They probably work in some sort of related sphere. They invest fairly large amounts and fairly often. So we will have tailored behavioral emails thinking about, you know, what makes the enthusiastic achiever user tick? How do we get them to invest? 
and it all feeds itself from there. You know, the, the better the supply, the more activated and engaged the demand is, the more that feeds more supply. So you can go out to other companies and say, look, we have this community of really engaged investors. And then that feeds itself and reciprocates too. You're acquiring your sort of investors via, almost by, by the businesses that are, are kind of coming on board. Obviously, there was a period when I think CrowdCube were doing a lot of advertising on the tube. And I think up until recently, you, you still do that. Is that more for customer acquisition, as in like investors? Is that more for the businesses or is it a halo effect for both? Where, where does that kind of sit in your sort of marketing stack, I suppose? That is a fantastic question. I think the way to answer that is that broadly, high level, your marketing function exists to do two things. It's to boost your brand and it's to build out your pipeline. And so really, I would bracket that one more in, in the brand side of things. You know, you want to be kind of more visible everywhere. You want to get people excited. It's often hard to quantify the value of brand impact, but you fundamentally believe in it as a business and you know that you want to be visible. People see those things. They absorb it as well. It's the same as the play that we do on LinkedIn. We know LinkedIn is the place to be. We've thought about our ICP. We know that they'll see us there, that the, the message will resonate with them as well. So we have, and again, we were chatting about this just a little bit before, I think, but we have our, you know, our main profile, which we use. We work very hard to activate and engage all of our employees as well. And one thing I've learned, and I think it makes sense when you think about it, but you can't strong arm people into posting on LinkedIn. They should do it because they want to. They're engaged and they'll do it in their own way. So for us, it's about saying like, this is how you can do it. You know, these people are doing it really well. Do you want us to help and show you how you can do it? So be the enabler for our people. So going back to, you know, kind of the tube ads and the LinkedIn is all part of the same thing. We want to create that buzz and excitement that we're kind of everywhere, getting people interested and then kind of the things feed back to us from there. Let's just talk about generally about the power of LinkedIn before we kind of hit click the record button. We were talking about how much of a great platform it is for, for B2B and we know it kind of comes under some scrutiny. Twitter users seem to not like LinkedIn and there's a bit of cringe on there. But by and large, it's, it's a massively powerful tool. So when you're leveraging LinkedIn to kind of reach out to your target audience, which is, I'm assuming, founders of, of, of startups and scale-ups, are you relying purely, you know, 100% on organic and, and kind of that team effort? Or do you kind of mix that in with a bit of paid? You know, what, what, what's the what's sort of... And, and, and do you do sort of any direct, you know, DM type stuff as well? Yeah, I, I might be sort of digging into the secret sauce here a little bit, but... Currently, we don't do paid, but that's not because we don't see value in it, but because we, we kind of explore things that were quite strategic and intentional with how we do it. So rather than saying, um, let's do a bit of paid and see what sticks, the idea that we have is to split it into, you know, the feed is quite a crowded space. We want to stand out. So what we would like to do with paid is basically kind of um, stand out a little bit, build up a retargeting audience that we then go after with kind of, you know, some slightly more further down the funnel, uh, specific things addressing their pain points. That's maybe one for, I think, uh, a Q2 initiative because we have enough to keep us busy on the organic side. Just as an aside, I, I've heard great things about people using conversational ads, which is quite a new one to me. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit out of the, the PPC loop relative to what I used to do, but I've heard people get really great results from the B2B side with conversational ads. I think like everything, there's a saturation point where the first few people to do it, they really nail it. And from there, kind of people get exhausted. But for us, it's it's really uh, a hugely organic play at the minute with with LinkedIn. There's so much for us to go after. As I say, we use the main page as kind of like our, our anchor and we build it out from there. I think the other thing to mention is obviously 
the bigger the company that we work with, the more complex the buying committee. So it's very much about understanding, look, we can go at this from various different angles. Do we, the marketers, like do we make a, a kind of hit list of those big CMOs or the heads of marketing that we want to reach out to? Salespeople more on the commercial side. Our financial team, largely I think by the nature of what they do, are not as active on LinkedIn. So it's more kind of the purely commercial side. But what I would do is make a list of, for example, these are 10 CMOs that you know I would love to engage with and then potentially at some point work with them for crowdcube but not go with the hard sell you know so i make the list follow them on linkedin as we were discussing before you know be very intentional with having them in my feeds comment on what they're saying um i do use a few too many emojis but you know kind of not just putting platitudes but actually something interesting and then it will come back to you right and build it up from there so yeah at the minute it's very organic and, and ditto the sales team you know if uh someone's doing great stuff they're on our radar just kind of congratulate them on it you know put some insightful comments if they're featured on a list, go out for them as well. So there's, there's plenty for us to go after there at the minute on, on the organic side. Again, kind of going back on the nuances of LinkedIn, there's a crowd there that that doesn't like to, or always sort of um, how it, pushes back on, on people sending DMs and, and connecting and actually using it as a sales tool. But you know, personally speaking, what else is it there for at the end of the day? You know, we, we, you know there's, there's only so many lunches I can, and, and pictures of kids I can look at on Facebook and, and stuff on TikTok now. But yeah, LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn is, 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 is absolutely perfect for that. Another interesting one I've seen, Shmir, and I've seen some people get great mileage out of it, is actually the cross-posting. One that stands out to me, I spend a fair amount of time on Reddit just because I think it's an amazing... Again, if you curate it and use it well, it's a fantastic source of knowledge. You can see the B2B marketers that are active Reddit users based on the meme that appears on Reddit will appear on a feed a couple of days later in LinkedIn, yeah. which is great. But uh, TikTok videos, I've seen people prove kind of naysayers wrong with like create a tiktok video cross post it on linkedin i mean the guys at lavender do it amazingly well uh they're absolutely crushing it with kind of taking really fun interesting content they put it on tiktok build it up and then purpose it on on linkedin so i guess it's like it's horses for courses too right kind of as we said understanding your icp what makes them tick and how do you get in front of them yeah huge part of it i think that's that's kind of hit the nail on the head really kind of want to talk a little bit about um the market landscape at the moment, we've had a bit of a downturn. You know, there's debates on whether or not we, you know, we are in a recession or are we entering a recession. I think whatever it is, there's been a slowdown in the marketplace. And it kind of happened from sort of mid-year last year. How has that impacted Crowdcube? I mean, I've got a personal opinion on it, but I kind of like to hear it from the horse's mouth and say, you know, have you guys ridden that out? Has it been an issue? You know, how have you found it? I think like everyone, we are, of course, susceptible to macroeconomic dynamics and we work with companies looking to raise money. And we really need to be very in tune and mindful of that, right? Like marketing 101, know your audience, know your buyers. It doesn't land with us to go out with a message. Raise a lot of money, everything's great. If people are kind of thinking about, uh, you know, keeping their powder dry and sort of looking over to the next 12 months. But what is fascinating and really interesting to see is on the retail investor side, 2022 did not dampen appetite at all, actually. Like if we look at our numbers, I mean, we had 246,000 new accounts created on the platform, which year on year was a 29% growth. And in terms of investors, we welcomed 100,000 new investors, which is up 25%. So that really kind of blew my mind in a sense that there's definitely a lot of doom and gloom in the market. But in terms of what we see on the retail investor activity side, and that, that goes back to that point where I was talking to you about typologies as well. And I think that sometimes... 
retail investors get labeled a bit unfairly as they're not, you know, accredited or savvy and they don't always know what they're doing. And, you know, kind of it's it's a lot of people sort of just hitting and hoping. It's actually quite the opposite, I, I would say. You know, it's it's just so interesting to see that part, but of course affected, but overall performance is strong. And we want to build and consolidate on that going into 2023 as well. My perception is, is that actually is a good opportunity for Crowdcube because, yeah, in a time where your audience, really, your target companies need funds, you're, you're a conduit to that. And, and there seems to be, you know, yes, cost of living has increased, but with the sort of upper end of the market, they still have, you know, residual cash. Um, so I suppose, you know, Crowdcube is probably looking fairly strong for 2023. Oh, yeah, massively. And then, you know, uh, diversification has probably landed as a message more than ever, you know, kind of most people don't put all of their eggs in one basket. But if you see the public side going uh, in one direction, or it's perhaps more volatile, yeah, the private market is inherently more illiquid, but that means it's less susceptible to kind of things that happen in the short term. But you're bang on there as well, you know, kind of part of our value prop is to help you raise money, help you grow. Your company's founded on the idea that if you have a great concept, you've got traction, you've got a community that loves what you want to do. Nothing else should be limiting you in terms of how you raise money, be it your background, your profile, your capability, but also economic conditions. So we come in there as well, you know, exactly as you say, kind of, we can, we can help you raise that money and, and help you take it to the next level here and across Europe too. Well, at one point you mentioned was, you know, retail investors not getting enough credit. Um, and, and you also talked about obviously your, your, your sort of value proposition. So I think, I think the stats are something along the lines of you, you've raised money for, I think, over a thousand companies, about what, a, one one and a half billion that you've raised in total. How do you think you know Crowdcube has reshaped the world of investing? That's a great point. And when you look at, for example, specifically fintech, how has reshaped the world of investing? Is it's allowed fintech companies to kind of cement and enhance the relationship that they have with their customers? Because part of the value prop from a B two B side is that once you become a co-owner of a company, because you invest on the same terms as institutional finance, which is part of the beauty of it, you're in there for the ride, right? So we have kind of a lot of stats to prove that people who are a co-owner as well as a user, you know, they're much more loyal, they churn less, they're going to be a brand ambassador and refer you everywhere. Particularly in the fintech space, they're going to be top of the list in terms of like beta users, testing stuff out, giving you value adds. I mean, a couple of stats that come to mind for me are what one is GoHenry, so kind of the the kids finance app. They have stats to show that their shareholders, so their retail investors that come in through the rounds, they spend fifty percent more than kind of what you might call regular customers, and they're providing about double the number of referrals. But the one that absolutely blows my mind is is Chip, so the the investing app. They have uh, from their co-owners, I think they are four hundred percent more likely to refer people. And the one that like is absolutely staggering is uh, 500% less likely to churn. So the value prop in terms of how you've changed the investment landscape is, is kind of using crowdfunding you know, to just really nurture that relationship, also as a marketing exercise. But then you, you look at the numbers. I mean, we work with the likes of, you know, across Europe, you've got Revolut in there, Free Trade, Pronto from France. Monzo have 36,000 retail investors on their, um, from their rounds. Moneybox has close to 17,000. So changing things, it's opened things up for the better, I think. You know, it's, it's really enabled people to, to do a whole lot more. Absolutely. I think, I mean, I, I always see, you know, there's so many benefits to, to you know, to, from a company's end. Obviously, you've got the customer loyalty bit, you've got brand awareness, 
great for targeting an audience that has disposable income and wants to invest. So I can understand why Chip is absolutely spot on. We've got a client of ours, I won't mention the name, but they're uh, running a campaign in March. It'll be absolutely perfect for them. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll benefit from obviously getting the investment, but also a tranche of users at the same time as well. Kind of one of the areas that other areas that I kind of want to venture into is just talk, start talking a little bit about the growth of Crowdcube. So kind of going way back when, when I, when I said, I, you know, when I first came across Crowdcube like 10 years ago, you guys have grown, I mean, massively. It feels like a lifetime ago, but you know, you, you've done several crowdfunding raises yourself. You've had investment from, uh, I think Numis, Draper, Balderton and, and, and a whole bunch more. Are you on the cusp of or have you started rolling out, rolling out across Europe? So we've been in Europe around about uh, a year now, officially. Of course, uh, I think like for a lot of people, Brexit made things slightly more challenging for us. But yeah, we're the only platform to have that, or the first, I should say, to have kind of Europe-wide accreditation. So what that means is that a company can raise on Crowdcube in the UK and across Europe. So you access both pools of investors. Obviously, a lot of work because they're regulated goes into kind of getting that up and ready. But yeah, the company uh, has always looked at that kind of horizon for growth and is now operating across uh, across all of Europe. And so that's initially the kind of job I came in was to help with that expansion. And, you know, I think from a marketing perspective, when it comes to growing, the devil is really in the detail, if you know what I mean, kind of um, small things. do You have to sweat the small things, if you know what I mean. Like if you're marketing to French investors or to French companies, the way they think about those things is very different to how you do it. In the, even the term crowdfunding has a completely different meaning. Even if you translate it you know, um, in, into the language, it means something very different in different places. So for example, in the Nordics, I have an office in Stockholm, crowdfunding has existed, but it's dominated by smaller players. And so the way that it's typically seen is you know, uh, one of the pushbacks you get is our crowdfunding companies that can't raise money anywhere else, or it's, it's literally to keep the lights on. It's actually quite the opposite of what we do. So kind of when it comes to growing and kind of one of the things, yeah, the, even, even the name, the term you use really matters. So digging deep into that one, I think is really important. The other one, which I guess applies to stuff in general and particularly to marketing is just, you know, take as much feedback as you can get, the good, but but also the ugly. And, you know, kind of be really grateful when, when people give you feedback, even if on the inside it hurts, it's what makes you better, right? So th- those are definitely things that we've we've been learning and kind of applying to, to make us better too. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I know what you mean. I literally just um, done like um end of year slash beginning of year session with, with, with our board. And uh, there was like, I do like highlights and lowlights and like, you know, highlights are great, but you've got to spend your time with the lowlights and it, there's bits that hurt and, and you know, but you're all quite a bit sore from it. But I think it, 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 you know, puts you in a position of strength. So we've supported a few companies that have scaled across Europe and, and we've kind of got like a checklist, we kind of call it, of, areas that we focus on. I said what I'm interested in, in in kind of understanding from from your perspective or Crowdcube's perspective, you know, was it a flat rollout across the whole of Europe or did you sort of go in it, you know, with one territory first? And then kind of what were the attributes that encouraged you to make that decision basically? We've had a physical presence in Spain for around about seven or eight years now. So we have an office there and we've been running there for quite some time. So that's been there and that's really allowed us to gain great learnings about the differences, but also to shape the international approach and, you know, kind of sweat the small things, but also take it one step at a time. Because obviously when expanding or launching a product in general, you typically have that tension between the the commercial and and the product side. So, you know, one is typically stronger or more ready than the other. 
And if you mess with that balance too much, you know, you kind of only get one first impression to launch in a market. And if you go really hard on the commercial side, but the product isn't quite there, you're going to suffer and vice versa. If you have an incredibly strong product, but no one using it, um, it, it's also difficult. So definitely a phased approach, uh, starting out with Spain, uh, then coming up into France and, and to Sweden as well, and kind of taking it step by step, being very open to the feedback and kind of testing with a few campaigns, seeing how that works and, and taking it from there, really. I mean, in terms of the, um, I guess, to spin around, like in terms of the checklist, is, is that how you approach it as well? Or is, have you got a different different take on it? It's not a million miles apart, actually. Um, I've got to check. It sounds really sad. I've got to check this in front of me because uh, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm giving a talk. I should have asked that before I said mine, shouldn't I? And then been like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've done all of that. <laughs> so if you're going to ask, um, I'll, I'll run through it really, really quickly. It's eight points and I'll kind of bullet point it. So first thing is money, you know, budget. You know, do you have the budget to do it? Are you getting ahead of yourselves or are you going to be spread too thinly? And therefore that determines the number of territories you want to launch into. Uh, what does the landscape look like? So what's the total addressable market? And is there a growth trend in that, in that territory or country? So my view is always better to jump on a moving train than to, to kind of be stuck at the station. Prospective customers, you know, how many are there? Do they need educating? And then we always talk about product market fit, right? I think the people thing that people forget is you have the product, but the market might be different. So just because you've got product market fit in the UK, you may not have product market fit in say France, to your point, you were talking about Sweden and you were talking about France and, and the way they, you know, they, they um, categorize it and how they view it. That's a difference in market, right? So you could launch in with the same messaging and it could fall flat on its face. Regulation is obviously another piece. Competitors, so number of competitors and, and, and really how entrenched they are. How does your target audience consume media? And then do you have a hub where you've got lots of customers at the moment? So for example, we've got a client that is predominantly targeting Latin America. They want to make a reach over to Europe, but they've they've got actually quite a few clients through you know in, in Spain because obviously a lot of activity that they run content influencer etc um, is in Spanish. So they've picked up a lot of Spanish clients inadvertently. So yeah. that kind of makes the next strategic move for them. And then yeah, brand proposition and and, and messaging. Um, so how Great you checklist. yourself? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's that's sorry. I've kind of commandeered your your. No, um, I was I was nodding along, going, yeah, that was that all makes total sense to me, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so yeah, that's that's it's, yeah, it's not a million miles away from from um, kind of the angle that you took. Obviously, it's before your time, but do you know what the reasoning for for launching into Spain was? Um, or if you don't, that's absolutely fine. No, it's a little bit before my time, to be honest. I think you know, like all all startups, you kind of iterate and test and, and look at hypotheses. I believe there were sort of uh, testing into a couple of different markets and see what traction there was where and and Spain landed really well and you know became an additional market for the company to work in again based on kind of those those checklist points that you listed off as well but it made sense to continue there. Europe's a big place. Um, I have to re- remind all US clients and prospects of that that you know it's not just one country. You know, is there any plan to sort of spread further in Europe or or do you feel that you want to take a sort of stronger foothold in Europe first before you? Kind of, kind of consider that move outwards, if at all? I think the latter, well, exactly as you say, kind of Europe is on par population-wise with, with the US, but, you know, in terms of like the number of countries and kind of the, the different things that fall into it, it, it's all very different. Even if you look at France and Spain, for example, or France and the UK, we are definitely going to focus on France, the Nordics and Spain for now because there's so much potential for what we do. You know, I mentioned that uh, Canada's maybe five years behind the UK in terms of crowdfunding maturity and market acceptance. 
we are a few years behind, obviously, in, in Europe relative to the UK, because the UK is quite a pioneer of equity crowdfunding. So there is so much potential. That train is really only just speeding up. It, it's not even full yet. So there's a lot more people that we can bring along with us and, and take it along. So definitely our, our core focus for now is those three markets. That's amazing when you think about it, right? Because it's not like by any means the UK is saturated at all with, with, with crowdfunding. And then you've only got sort of, what, two or three key, key players. We won't mention the names, obviously. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> there's only one main player, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, yes, there's only a couple of players. It's nowhere near saturated and, and you know, it's still growing. So it just kind of makes you think the opportunity for Crowdcube as a business is, I mean, it's absolutely enormous when you think about it. Um, yeah. You guys have been going for over a decade now. It could be an, another decade before you've even really fully conquered Europe, if you think about it. And that's no disservice to the speed or anything. It's just the sheer size of it and, and, and the maturity of the market. No, and you, you know what, Shamir? One of the most enjoyable things about working with someone like Crowdcube is, is the people that you get to meet. You know, you would be amazed. We do a kind of live meetups once a month now, now that COVID's over, um, where people, you know, we'll do kind of a live pitch evening. So companies come along and that we have on the platform, we'll pitch to our investors. And some of the ideas that people have is, is nothing you were really even aware of. But when they talk about it, the passion that they have, you're all in, you're absolutely captivated. And so as you say, like in a way, UK is, is, is a market of a certain size, but there's much more potential here. And then you put that into Europe and you think, gosh, there's so many ideas, so many things that people with a little bit more uh, cash and coverage, they could really have game-changing ideas in so many industries that you weren't even necessarily aware of. It's, it's quite amazing, really. And that's just another thing that kind of brings me on to is, you know, we talk about territories and the possibilities there. The one thing that we haven't even talked about really is, is almost like product development to a certain extent. There's obviously opportunities for marketplaces. You've got platforms like Primary Bid, although not a direct competitor. They serve a niche, which is obviously uh, listed firms looking for funding. What's kind of on, on Crowdcube's horizon there? You know, what, you know, are there sort of any product developments or anything you can kind of share with us that would be of interest, do you think? I mean, high level, we're really focusing on making the product work and really kind of localize it for each individual market. And as I said, kind of sweating the small things, the devil is is often really in the detail on how that works and how you make it kind of feel very local for people and focusing on that core experience to make it fast, efficient and scalable. So I can't really go into the details or all the specifics of, of what that means, but we really want to double down on that core experience for those raises so that it's really pleasurable from the investor side, but also for the company too, right? Kind of because putting a pitch onto the platform is a lot of work and kind of um, getting yourself up and running you give a lot of yourself, you give a lot of time. It's, it's totally worth it, but it is quite kind of a, an intense experience. So really doubling down on making that, that core product amazing is, is what our focus is right now. That's probably a point I can add to my checklist, which is, which is localization, right? Yeah. It's such a huge part of launching into a territory that obviously for us where English isn't the first language, you know, and there's so many facets to that. Obviously, you know, you've got, there's the website itself, the platform, the email comms, the advertising itself. Yeah, you know, customer services and, and all of those bits and pieces that kind of need to be thought of. I can absolutely understand why, yeah, you know, 20, you know, there's more than 26 languages in Europe alone. So that, that, that's your kind of work cut out for you. I do like that. I mean, it's also kind of a good mantra in general, isn't it? But like, you don't need more time, you need more focus. And I guess in that respect, mm -hmm. you know, that we are pan-European. We have our core focus markets and we, we want to kind of make sure we're absolutely best in class, you know, kind of surprising and delighting people with the experience. So I think you're right, kind of localization does take a hell of a lot of work in itself, but it's, it's so worth it when you get it right too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you, you can, 
you can turn um you know a fledgling market into in, in into you know another uk just just simply by 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 getting that right there's quite a few training yeah. platforms that have done that quite well actually i think alpari did that pretty well nig's done that well as well there's one bit that um, i kind of wanted to you kind of just mentioned it which was you said you know putting together a pitch is is a lot of work and kind of just want to talk about that and, and kind of going back to the point i mentioned around you know crowd keep doing some advertising on the tube i think you know majority of people listening to this podcast would have seen you know their ads they you know you guys promote a particular brand do you kind of have any tips or suggestions or guidance for firms that are a looking to crowdfund um on crowdcube um and b <laughs> Any sort of tips and suggestions for actually putting their pitch together and, and actually their marketing their raise as well? Almost anyone looking to crowdfund should absolutely head straight to our website or, or drop me an email. But <laughs> um, joke, joking aside, um, obviously what, what we look for and I think what was really key or the key ingredients for success are, I mean, goes without saying, but kind of having a product market fit or something that people love and you have an engaged community who really back what you do and believe in it. Um, definitely making sure you have enough time to put towards these sorts of things. I think from a founder's perspective, it's also a very personal experience, isn't it? I mean, I've never gone through it myself from the other side, but you can imagine that kind of laying out your life's work or your ideas there for people to kind of analyze and inspect is, is quite an intense thing. So it's, you know, being ready from from that perspective. And I think in terms of what makes a great pitch, ultimately, people by people, you know, you can buy a concept and you can you have an idea. I think it goes back to what I said about, you know, a heart and mind and you need to win both rounds. If you think about kind of what larger institutional investors look at, yes, it's product, yes, it's traction, but it's also the team you have in place to execute those things, right? And then all of the all of the good things that go into a classic marketing mix, you know, kind of your distribution, how are you doing those things? You want to have regular updates with kind of proof points, interest, and almost think of it like any other marketing campaign that you would do for your business and kind of slot into to those best practices. And I think also just being genuine, right? Like you, you get a lot from kind of appealing to that human side of stuff, which you then reinforce and back up with the traction, which kind of appeals to the, to the mind side of things too. Great advice. I think we covered an awful lot. Um, let's break into our kind of quick fire round. What podcasts are you listening to at the moment, other than ours, obviously? Yes, I am listening to Demand Gen University by Metadata which uh, in terms of B2B marketing, I think they are fantastic. They're very candid. Uh, they talk about things I find really relatable and, you know, it's kind of bite-sized. Also, Against the Grain by uh, Kieran Flanagan, so ex-VP of marketing at HubSpot. I mean, just, you know, people do a lot of things, which I see him talking about a long time ago, if you see what I mean. So it's kind of like, I look as that almost like a little bit of a, a window into the future of what, what trends I should be on top of. Cool. Um, I've, I've got lots of views and opinions on, on demand gen, all positive ones, mind you. Um, any B2B brand that's not doing that is just missing a trick. Yeah. Um, simple as that. Other than Crowdcube, what would you say your favorite fintech brand is or f- favorite fintech app? You know, I'm going to go for uh, a classic, which probably a lot of people say, which is also Crowdcube alumni, but I, I love what Monzo do. I think particularly where I see it in quite a stark contrast is if you, from purely a marketing perspective as well, you take like a, a typical or a traditional bank and the way they do marketing, it's changing, but I feel like a lot of it is very product-led. Monzo has fundamentally understood their audience, which is, you know, like a millennial in an urban setting, and they build it all around that. So it's kind of like, yeah, that's me. That's that's relatable. And that's kind of your, very much your, your awareness part. You're not even thinking about the demand capture at that point. 
that's the 95%. And then they will come to you when they're 5% are ready to buy. So nothing but uh, nothing but respect and admiration for, for how Monza do things. What's the best bit of life advice you've ever received? The one I said earlier is, is great. You don't need more time. You need more focus mm. and, and be intentional. So, you know, kind of understand what, what you really want to do, how long it takes to do it, and kind of less is more. So, you know, have, have, have three kind of goals that are, you know, in your personal or professional life and, and just work towards them. John, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Likewise. Thanks so much, Shamir, and uh, really appreciate it. The FML Podcast is brought to you by Growth Gorilla. To find out how our marketing growth experts can boost your fintech's growth, head to growthgorilla.co.uk and make sure to search for the FML Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or anywhere else podcasts are found. Don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Growth Gorilla, thanks for listening.